up? Welcome to 200 and Counting. I'm your host, Tia Hill, and I have not done an episode of this podcast in a long ass time. I can't even lie to you. I can't even start this episode and act like shit's been sweet because it has been a smooth couple months since I have put out an episode. So I want to just start by saying thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast and who's been listening faithfully. Thank you for hanging in there and bearing with me. And if this is your first episode of the podcast that you've ever listened to, welcome. Part of the reason that I haven't put out any episodes, you know, I've first, to be honest, it was just like quarantine was kicking my ass. And then at a certain point, the news just started depressing me. I was like, you know what? I do not have the bandwidth. To be completely honest with you, I had to re-record this intro because the original one just sounded so freaking depressing. I was like, no, no, no. I need to add a little more pep in my step, you know? But I wanted to address what has been going on in the United States lately. Um, I've done a lot of documentaries for episodes in the past that have dealt with black history. You know, I did good hair. Well, that is a horrible first one to start with because that documentary sucked. But, you know, I did Soul Food Junkies. I did Let the Fire Burn. All these different things addressing like black culture and black history on the podcast. Black Lives Matter is coming back into the forefront of Um, you know, the cultural conversation, I wanted to do an episode on a documentary that I have been recommending to people because now all of a sudden people care about black people, which, you know, that is neither here nor there. But I would hope that if you were an ally and you're someone who is, you know, recently getting into the movement and you're like, yeah, black people do deserve rights. You know what? (laughs) They got a point there. I would hope that you want to educate yourself and with documentaries, with readings, whatever that may be, the perfect place to start is with the Ava DuVernay film 13. I think it's the perfect documentary if you want to learn about Black history and you want to learn about our present condition and how we got here and about oppression. This is my favorite documentary of all time. Spoiler alert, I'm gonna give it five stars out of five. This is the number one must watch documentary of the decade. This is on my best documentaries of the decade list. This is like best documentaries of my life. I'm really gassing it up and it is it exceeds expectations. It is so good, so moving, so beautiful of a film. So let's get into it. Yeah, get into it. Let's jump right in with this episode of 200 and Counting. We're going to be discussing the film 13th. One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled in the world, are locked up here in the land of the free. The title of the film is based on the 13th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And the 13th Amendment, if you're going to know one amendment, it is the most important amendment. This amendment abolished slavery. Now, important historical context, a lot of people think the Emancipation Proclamation that Lincoln sent out abolished slavery. It did not abolish slavery. It was more like a morale booster. And he literally just put out this paper and was like, hey, you know what we should do? Maybe get rid of slavery. But the 13th Amendment when that was ratified, abolished slavery. Now, another fun fact, the reason we celebrate Juneteenth, because uh, on June 19th, that is when they actually freed the slaves in Texas. Because of course, them trifling ass slave masters, they didn't tell anybody. And so the slaves were still down there working for like an extra few weeks after they um, ratified the amendment or whatever. And so June 19th, Juneteenth is the official, official day slavery was over in the United States. More important for us than the 4th of July. Period. Now, the whole documentary is about the prison system, the prison system and how it unfairly locks up black and brown people. Black people are locked up at disproportionately higher rates. It is literally crazy. The Bureau of Justice reported uh, that one in three uh, young black males is expected to go to jail or prison during his lifetime, which is an unbelievably shocking 
statistic. Black men account for roughly six and a half percent of the U.S. population. They make up 40.2 percent of the prison population. A common, you know, misconception that people love to throw back is like, well, if, if black people only make up 12 percent of the population, then how come they commit all these and they're locked up and they commit all these crimes? First of all, people like to think that because black people, are, they're locked up at a disproportionate rate. So you have to take a lot of things into account. And first of all, there's more white people in the country than black people. We only make up 12 percent of the population, but you don't just look at the raw data. I am not even good at statistics and I know that. Something you have to take into account is a lot of black people are locked up for things. That does not necessarily mean all of those things are like fucking homicide. You know what I mean? Like people are locked up unfairly all the time. People are locked up for petty crimes. We have people like Khalif Browder who they go they go through in the documentary, they mention him and he was locked up on Rikers for something he didn't even do for years, for years. And then he got out and then he ended up committing suicide. said, we're going to take you to the precinct and most likely we're going to let you go home. And then I never went home. So we have tons of cases like this all the time where people are unfairly locked up or, you know, black people and white people, they do drugs at the same rate. But for some reason, black people get locked up more. Hmm, I wonder why. Racism. Period. Anyway, this we're going to get into this with a documentary. I just get so damn heated. You know, I get heated. I need you guys to understand the statistics. And I also, for people who haven't had these discussions before, I need people to know how to combat that when they're having conversations because people love throwing that kind of stuff back at you. Like, oh, well, how come black people are committing all these crimes? You don't see us shooting up movie theaters, do you? How come nobody brings that up? All right. So the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. However, you have to look at the wording of the 13th Amendment. 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. If you have that embedded in the structure, in this constitutional language, then it's there to be used as a tool for whichever purposes one wants to use it. After slavery, there was a period in U.S. history called Reconstruction. So during Reconstruction, they were, quote, rebuilding the South. During Reconstruction, at first, Black people were like in the Senate, they were like super active in politics, doing all this stuff. It was like, oh my gosh. And mind you, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were all passed at the same time. 14th Amendment, which allowed equal protection under the law, and 15th Amendment, which supposedly gave uh, people, Black people, voting rights, even though we didn't really get the right to vote until the 60s. But so during the period of Reconstruction, at first, we were doing super well. Then President Andrew Johnson came in and all of these legislatures started passing these things called Black Codes. And these were basically random laws to control what black people were be able were able to do. And a lot of these laws were super racist. Like some of them were about like loitering and random little things. Like, of course we want to loiter. We've been working on the damn fields for the last however many hundred years. Let us loiter, bitch. They made things like that illegal. And then they started arresting black people unfairly. They were arresting children. And if you watch the documentary, they're showing you too. So they're arresting people. They're locking people already into this cycle of incarceration. And this is literally just right after slavery, making them work and locking them into to this system that they can't really get out of because people were literally just freed from slavery. And I don't even want to say freed as if it was like a passive thing that, you know, white people decided one day like, oh my God, that was so crazy. Let's let them go. There were generations of people fighting for their freedom. People were running away. You know, people really, really fought for this and it's wrong in the first damn place. So it shouldn't even be a discussion. But anyway, so after this period, you have a whole race of people who what are we supposed to do? You know, we have no resources. We were brought here against our will. We've been living here for generations and there's no legislation really to try to help us. They did try to give us our 40 acres and a mule. Shout out Spike Lee. And then actually a lot of those people ended up having to give that land back to the slave owners 
who felt like their lands had been taken by the people who had worked it for the last however many hundreds of years. What's really interesting and what the documentary mainly touches on is the fact that just that one amendment, just the one amendment that people love to go back to as if it was like, all right, we're free. And that was like us taken off in a rocket ship to greatness. Now, while we have done amazing things, the ripple effects of that amendment were visible for years and years and years afterwards. That's a really great thing the documentary does is that it takes things that were happening literally in the 1860s and ties it to today. There's a lot of graphs out that talk about how, you know, there were 400 years of slavery and then there was a period of reconstruction. And during reconstruction, mind you, there was a lot of racial backlash from poor white people who felt threatened by newly freed black people, poor and rich white, white people in general, to be honest, who felt threatened by newly freed black people who they started the Klan. They started all of these groups designed to physically restrict black people from voting, exercising their right. You know, there are a lot of like false rape claims that come out and people are literally getting lynched, killed, put in prison, just absolutely abused for years and years and years. And this is where you see the prison population start to rise and fill up with African-American men, mostly at this point, and, and women. What you got after that was on a rapid transition to a kind of mythology of black criminality. Go back and you know read the rhetoric that people use then. They would say that the Negro is out of control, that there's a threat of violence uh, to white women. There is this common stereotype that exists up until today. You see it in all sorts of imagery of the black brute, as they call it, of black people, specifically men, black men being seen as inherently violent, inherently dangerous and a threat to white women and to just white society acting like we're just running around committing crimes. There was this belief that black people were so inherently violent and so inherently dangerous. That's why they had to enslave us because we were just so, so fucking violent. Something that did a really, really good job in pushing this idea that black people were super, super dangerous and needed to be policed was this racist ass movie called Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation confirmed the story that many whites wanted to tell about the Civil War and its aftermath, to erase defeat and to take out of it sort of a martyrdom. Birth of a Nation was racist as hell, okay? Everybody in blackface, you know, they didn't let any black people on screen back then. So everybody's in blackface and it's basically about, you know, this, this black man who comes and he's just gonna go around attacking white women and then the Ku Klux Klan comes and saves the day. That's how you know it's racist. The good guys in this movie are the Ku Klux Klan. Now, fun fact, that was actually the first movie to be screened at the White House. So that just tells you who this country was built for. Just saying. So that movie came out out in the early 1900s and it was a hit, of course. You know, the NAACP and other black groups did protest um, about its release, but it did a really good job of putting into the minds of the American people this idea that black people were inherently dangerous and that we needed to be police. It's interesting because I'd already done all of this research on my own the summer before this documentary came out. I already knew these facts about the stereotypes and yet still the way that this documentary tied that into the film was totally new to me. I didn't know a lot of this information that they were bringing up and they made really good points tying just that film alone into how they saw us back then and up until now. That's why you heard politicians like Hillary Clinton using terminology like super predators. And when you hear, when you heard Ronald Reagan and all of these other presidents using this coded language, it's like a dog whistle to signal racist things. You know, another president they touch on is Richard Nixon, who started the war on drugs even though Ronald Reagan, you know, he was really he, he was really up in that bitch. But President Nixon technically declared the war on drugs in the 70s. America's public enemy number one in the United States 
is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. That really just set off a chain reaction that was going for quite some time, honestly, up until today. They talk a lot in the documentary about how when you start a war on drugs or something like that, it's so vague that it's easy to justify all sorts of messed up behavior because the thing that you're declaring war on is not necessarily an enemy that can ever be defeated. What are you gonna get rid of all drugs? Not the weed. And that was another interesting point that they brought up. And something that's really good about this documentary is that it brings up all these facts that you may know, but the way they explain how it links to the larger story of black history and you know black people being criminalized in that way, it does just such a good job of drawing it all together. You know, you would never think that all of these things would be related, but lo and behold, yes, they are. The way that it related it though to modern day, and obviously like I'm, I'm skipping a lot of black history because I'm not going to recount all of our history from 1865 to now, but one of the most poignant moments in black history and something that was a turning point for us. Now, I'm gonna sound like a conspiracy theorist, but if you know me, you know that for years, literally probably since 2014, so yeah, for like six years now, I have been obsessed and I've seen every documentary that is even loosely related to crack cocaine in the black community because crack cocaine, you know, which was introduced to the black community in the 1980s, backed by the CIA, yes, the US government, and I'm 100% serious, please go look this up. The US government had people sell crack in black communities to fund the Nicaraguan Contras so that they could fund a government, you know, a takeover of a Latin American government on behalf of the United States. If you've never heard this before, it sounds crazy. I've told people this before and they're like, Tia, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. It has actually been proven. It's been reported on. Journalist um, Gary Webb wrote a book about it and Gary Webb ended up committing suicide after he wrote this book. But anyway, that is the backdrop of information I had going into this. So the reason it was a turning point is because if you look at black history, right, we struggled. OK, we struggled and we were great. And in the 60s, we had the whole civil rights movement. And a lot of times I think history is taught as like, all right, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King died. And then we all lived happily ever after. And next thing you know, Obama was president. And that's that on that, ladies and gentlemen. After the civil rights movement, there was a period of black power in the 70s. You know, the Black Panthers are strong. People are like really getting in touch with their roots. You know, Pan-Africanism is becoming a thing. Kwanzaa, like all of these things to celebrate blackness and to celebrate black is beautiful, blah, 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 blah. Then all of a sudden in the 80s, crack cocaine enters into black neighborhoods. Just all of a sudden, you know, cocaine is the powder form of crack. Crack is a rock. Cocaine is the powder form of that. It was seen as a white drug because it was more expensive and crack was more closely associated with black people. Now, just in general, there have been a lot of studies that have come out that have said that black people and white people do drugs the same amount, but black people get arrested for drugs way more. The federal government ends up passing these new guidelines, these sentencing guidelines for crack versus cocaine. Because each drug was associated with a different racial group, there were different consequences. Congress in virtually record time established mandatory sentencing penalties for crack that were far harsher than those for powder cocaine. The same amount of time in prison for one ounce of crack cocaine that you get for 100 ounces of powder cocaine. Five grams of crack would carry a minimum five-year 
federal prison sentence. 500 grams of cocaine is what it took to get the same five-year sentence. So basically what that means is you could have not that much crack and you have to get five years. That's the minimum. What you ended up having a lot of times is you ended up having black people who were addicted to drugs who were getting locked up for years and years and years. People are doing 25-year sentences over some drugs. I'm not saying you should be able to freely smoke crack. However, I am advocating for actual resources for people who have drug addiction. You should be helping these people, not throwing them in prison to then come out and raise the recidivism rate, meaning the rate of people who return to prison because you did not take care of them in the first place. There was also things introduced in the 90s, like this three strike rule, where if you had two strikes, your third strike, you're going away for a really, really, really long time. There were a lot of different um, presidents who were involved in this. Ronald Reagan famously Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. famously peddled that whole crack narrative, right? Ronald Reagan and his wife had the just say no to drugs. Reagan promised tax cuts to the rich and to throw all the crack users in jail, both of which devastated communities of color, but were effective in getting the Southern vote. The way it was marketed was like these were monsters. Once again, I'm not saying people should be smoking crack, but I am saying it's ridiculous that you're having federal agents raid people's homes over a few grams of crack. That's ridiculous. You should be helping people. You should be giving people resources, rehabilitation centers that actually help them and give them a job. Because what you have to understand is you're going to put this person in prison for 10 years. They come out, they have no skills. You haven't helped them. Half these places won't even hire them. So what, what is that person supposed to do? Of course, the recidivism rate is going to be high because people do not have any other option. That's why there were so many people in the damn prison system because of those sentencing laws. They had great, great interviews from people, including Michelle Alexander, author of this book called The New Jim Crow. We love her. We stand. You see a rhetorical war that was, you know, announced as part of a political strategy by Richard Nixon and which morphed into a literal war by Ronald Reagan, um, turning in um, to something that began to feel nearly genocidal in many poor communities of color. The only thing, the only thing that I did not like about this documentary was the fact that they had these weird rap interludes. <laughs> At certain points, somebody would be rapping some lyrics, like kind of to bridge each gap of information. I thought it flowed very well and they did not need to do that at all. I guess they wanted to like introduce hip hop into it, which is cool, but I was like, oh, this seems a little bit forced. But that was literally the only thing, literally the only thing that does not change my reading at all. It's still perfect. I just kind of sweep that under the rug and pretend I didn't hear it. And there's all sorts of details that this documentary goes into. And I think that that's what's so great about it is that there were great graphics, there were great interviews from people and they never had to be a narrator to be like, and that is why it was bad. It was just great interviews with people back to back to back to back to back. A great B-roll. They found just amazing shots, all this good statistical information. And that is why I think it's essential viewing because if you don't know the stats, if you don't know the numbers and that's what you're trying to learn, it has it. So the thing about this documentary though, and why it's such a good overview is because it doesn't just talk about straight up prison. It also just talks about, you know, the black American experience just in terms of the community and in terms of society, mass incarceration and the those kinds of issues. It's affected my family personally. Like I know so many people that has had an impact on it and it affects generations and generations of families. This documentary was able to convey that message and make it so emotional. When I tell you, I have cried every, I've seen this documentary three or four times now. I've cried every time. And every time I'm like, no, I'm not going to cry now. Cause like, I know the part where I'm going to cry, but like, and then I cry. 
I cry every damn time. There are two specific scenes that really, really got me that really, to me, make it the documentary of the year because not only does it hit you with facts and hit you with great interviews and hit you with some great B-roll, but it gets into your emotions, okay? I was having dreams about this damn film, all right? There's one scene where Ava, genius, cuts together speeches from Donald Trump and juxtaposes B-roll from the civil rights movement where we had people protesting for integration of schools and for the end of segregation. And it's his speech where he's talking about, you know, in the good old days, blah, 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 some bullshit like that. In the good old days, this doesn't happen because they used to treat them very, very rough. And when they protested once, you know, they would not do it again so easily. And it is so powerful. So you have to look it up. You have to see it because it is so powerful in that moment. What's especially fucked up is because when this came out, this was right before the election in 2016. I was in college still. And I remember the political context of the time when I saw that, I felt so moved and it really, really sat with me. And I was like, we have to do everything we can to vote in November. Oh my gosh, you know, the night of the election, I that that scene from the documentary replayed in my mind the night of the election. And that is why I tell everybody to watch it because I don't think people fully understand what we see, what some of us see. Some people are delusional, but I don't think people fully understand what we see when we see what's going on in the news today. The second most emotional scene to me was eventually we move on to talking about over-policing and Black Lives Matter. Now, this came out in 2016. This mainstream kicked to like, now everybody says Black Lives Matter, like nobody was acting like, oh my God, about it literally like four or five years ago. Okay. But anyway, back then it was still like a movement and I was very much into it in college because it started happening as I was leaving high school. And there's a scene where they're talking about black people who have been unarmed black people who have been shot and killed by police officers. Now, I personally, it probably 2016 might've been the last time that I watched any of those videos because it was having such a bad effect on my mental health that I was like, I, I can't, I can't watch this. I still to this day refuse to watch them because it is unnatural for us to have to watch other people that look like us dying and watching that being circulated. I refuse. Because I did not know this was in the documentary, there is a part where they play scenes from this back to back to back to back to back. What's really, really powerful about it is that it pushes you to the point where you feel uncomfortable. It pushes you to the point where you're like, I don't want to look at this anymore. Like, I don't want to see this. And that is what snaps in your head to be like, okay, then we need to end that. We need to stop that from happening. As a black person and as a black woman, to watch those clips back to back to back, by the fourth or fifth clip, I'm usually crying. Like, I just can't even stomach all of it. It's the music in the background. It's the fact that no one is talking over it. You just see these scenes and it really hits you to be like, well, damn, like, we've watched and listened to all of these, you know, I've been seeing these, these videos since I was like 17 on the internet. And it is just the most powerful moment. I, those two moments are truly two of the most powerful moments I've ever seen in a documentary. So powerful that even when I go back and watch it now, having seen it multiple times, I still will be moved by it. I still will be emotional. It will still hit me like I can feel the impact of it. And that is why I tell people it's essential viewing because there's no way you can watch that documentary and come out of that with any questions for why Black Lives Matter. If you aren't really about that action, once you watch this documentary, you're going to be like, oh, hell no, this is this is fucked up. And it is fucked up. So you should watch to find out just how fucked up it really is. Part of the reason that this documentary really sat with me was like I was saying, the political context for me at the time, I was a senior in college. It was right before the election. 
And one thing that I do appreciate about it was that it ended with a message of hope. Documentary depressing as hell, but it gave this message of hope. It was wild because, you know, like a month or two after it came out, um, the, the election did not go how we wanted it to go. Uh, so that was a little bit depressing, but it does give this just overarching message of hope from a lot of people who are super smart. And it was just so moving. Anytime I feel like disillusioned with anything or I'm, I need, you know, the, the fuel to go on, I'm like, you know, let me watch this. The, let me watch this and get myself riled up real quick. You know, we've talked about the whole documentary. If you've watched it already, if you haven't, I know there's a lot of people who listen to my podcast, you know, it's a pretty even split in terms of the demographics of my listeners, I would imagine. So I think that there's a lot of white people who are getting into these conversations now. And a lot of times when we talk about slavery and we talk about the history of the United States, people get really defensive and they're like, well, I didn't fucking bring you over here. Like it wasn't me who enslaved people. You know, I think the reality of the situation is that we have a really unique, you know, we got a really unique country on our hands because it's something that we never confronted slavery and the effects of slavery. And now hundreds of years later, people like to act like, you know, well, get over it. And this documentary is a really great example of no we can't just get over it. We literally cannot get over it because there's systems put in place that are actively working against us. That mentality is still embedded in American history and culture. And that is what we need to confront. You know, scholars back then used to call slavery this peculiar institution, which was a massive fucking understatement because people were being tortured every damn day. But anyway, that's what they used to call it. And you know, people would come from around the world to be like, oh my gosh, this crazy thing with America. And I think something that is universal that they touch on at the very beginning of the documentary, which I think was great because it kind of pacifies right off the bat people who are going to be like, well, this isn't my problem. It's like, no, 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 no. This white guy basically explains, you know, all of us are the product of decisions that our ancestors made. But for some people, for black people, we are the product of decisions that our ancestors, we didn't get to make those decisions. Those were, we were taken. You know, he makes a really, really good point with that. And I think that that's a great thing for people to keep in mind when they're discussing how we're moving forward and how our history plays a role in that. History is not just stuff that happens by accident. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose if we're white. If we are black, we are products of the history that our ancestors most likely did not choose. Yet here we all are together, the products of that set of choices, and we have to understand that in order to escape from it. And that's part of why I think 13th is such essential viewing, because it puts so many things into perspective. I think you can share all the flowery things on Instagram you want to, you can retweet all the things you want to, you can donate all you want to, but because we still live in a country where people do segregate themselves based on race in terms of friendships and relationships, relationships and whatever, certain conversations will not be had. But I think that it's important for people to understand how we got to where we are today. And if you have that kind of context and understanding, that will help inform the decisions you make in the future and how you can help do your part to make it better. But anyway, 13, great documentary, six out of five stars. It exceeds expectations. So beautiful, so moving. Um, and obviously I had to do an episode on it. I'd, I'd always wanted, I'd always planned to do an episode on it eventually. Um, but I was like, now, if there's ever been a time that I have to do an episode on a documentary, it is right now. So thank you to everyone who's listened. Thank you to everyone who's been subscribed to the podcast, who, if you're new and you're just now listening, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with me. If you want more, 
more recommendations of documentaries about the Black experience besides African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross, which is a great film. You can check me out on Instagram, tortillatips.jpg. I posted a link of um, just a list of different documentaries about the Black American experience. So if you want some other things you want to learn, check them out. Most of them are on, most of them are on Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, you know, whatever. Look at my, take a little look-see, do a little digging. But yes, thank you so much for listening and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.